I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. This podcast is made in collaboration with The Jewish Journal. Hey guys, before we get to the episode today, we have a great partnership with Israel Story. If you haven't heard about Israel Story, it's a podcast that brings you long-form storytelling from in and around Israel. It tells extraordinary true stories about regular people living in Israel, the kind you won't see on the news or read about online. The show presents quirky, unpredictable, interesting, and movie stories, moving stories about a place we think we know a lot about but really don't. So, for example, they just kicked off uh, season four with uh, an episode called The Wall, which has this amazing story about a Jewish Arab baby born at the uh, at the Western Wall in, in the middle of the Six-Day War. It's incredible. So, guys, check it out. Israel's story. Uh, Ira Glass himself called it the This American Life of Israel. You can subscribe to Israel Story today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher at IsraelStory.org or wherever you listen to your episodes, to your podcasts. Israel has current has certainly sorry. Israel has certainly earned the nickname Startup Nation. We have the largest number of startups per capita in the entire world. The population of this small country recently passed 9 million. So that's about a startup for every 1,500 people. The stories abound of huge exits like Mobileye to Intel for $15 billion, Mellanox sold to NVIDIA for about $7 billion earlier this year, and the list goes on and on and on. But what makes Israel the startup hub that it is, what does the VC startup courtship look like here in Israel? And with so many startups, what happens to all the ones that fail? Max Marine is a CFA at Lul Ventures, an Israeli VC that has invested in several successful Israeli startups, including Zuz, which sold to PayU for $80 million. So I'm super thrilled to be joined by Max today on the podcast to talk about Startup Nation. Thank you so much, man joining us how are you i'm good thank you for having me so why why do you think it is that uh that israel is like i mean you you have like a front row seat to this stuff right you see these guys every day coming and begging for money uh, <laughs> but uh why do you think it is that like we have so many startups and so many people that are entrepreneurial sure yeah i mean i'm not gonna say anything too original because you know most of my perspective on this came from that book startup nation that yeah. I read about 10 years ago on my way to Israel for the first time. <coughs> Confession, um, I never read it. So, so, I'll, <laughs> so give it'll you, sound I'll give you the cliff, I'll give you the cliff's notes. <laughs> um, you know, it's a mixture of things. Obviously, you have this country of immigrants and, you know, everyone's trying to sort of prove themselves as, a, you know, a successful person. Uh, most of, many really successful businesses in America were built by immigrants. So to have a country full of them, many first generation, you just sort of have this like fearlessness, you know, mm -hmm. nothing to lose, um, no legacy behind you. I think, you know, obviously the book points a lot to the army and the experience that you get in the army of taking responsibility at a young age and managing sometimes tens or maybe even hundreds of people at a very young age. So it just gives the DNA of entrepreneurship to lots of people, mm -hmm. as well as the threats that Israel faces on a daily basis, you know, from the air, from the land, yeah. from the sea, um, 
they're sort of forced to create a lot of really innovative solutions with very few resources to sort of so sustain think outside the box. Definitely have to yeah. think outside the box, but just to sustain like some sense of safety and security. I mean, no, it's no surprise that cybersecurity in Israel is world class and mm -hmm. you know protects trillions of dollars in value all over the world. Yeah. Computers, mobile phones, everything's being protected by Israeli cyber on some some layer. Um, and they have to do it first for themselves, but then when they leave the army, they realize, wait, mm -hmm. I can make a lot of money like just <laughs> selling this to the But is it like world. technologies that they take from the I mean, I don't know if you know this, but like is it technologies that they take from the military or is it I mean, like, you know, when you build a system to scrape web, web data, like, to protect, you know, the country, then you understand big data and system architecture and the internet's infrastructure. So when you come out, you can apply that knowledge to a different problem or a different use case. You're not necessarily protecting your, you know, national security, but maybe you're finding some correlation between... I don't know, c consumer data and buying patterns and you create some sort of retail What I'm company. saying, is there like any issue with the IP, IP that like yeah. people are, is there, have, they, have you ever encountered a story where people have been like with the military has kind of cracked down on, I don't know, someone taking Most IP? IP conflicts we have come from actual universities. So they've uh, developed okay. something at like the Weitzman or Technion or TAU or BGU and now they're trying to bring it out and, you know, the universities want... Yeah. A, everything and the entrepreneurs want everything and then in israel it's just you know it's yeah. a fight to, to the death i, I remember noor and i actually studied film together at tel aviv university mm -hmm. and uh, basically there's a there's a uh, like part of the terms of agreement of learning at the university is mm -hmm. that every everything you make in the university is made is owned by it's university. university property yeah. yeah it's like their ip yeah so i mean none of us made it big so luckily <laughs> In the university, so yeah. Uh, okay, so what's this like VC startup relationship like? I mean, mm -hmm. is it like is it like dating? <laughs> I mean, I feel like it would be kind of this courtship where startups are trying to like you know vie for 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 VC's attention. But I heard recently, I read that kind of the tables have turned here in Israel, and that mm -hmm. like really the VCs are trying to get the attention of the startups. Yeah. So there's a Pareto in VC, which is that you know. 80% of the companies are less attractive, 20% are very attractive. Um, and so basically all of the VCs want to get in front of that 20%. Uh, it actually gets even more significant once you go into that 20% of that 20%, only 20% are really, really high quality, which mm -hmm. gets you to like 4% of the total, you know, yeah. addressable entrepreneurship market. Math. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Multiplication division. God damn. And, and so basically, I, I like to say that VCs are in the business of selling money. Um, most people think it's the opposite way around where, you know, all these amazing entrepreneurs are knocking at your doorstep every day and you just get to choose which one, you know, you partner with. But really VCs um, want to work with a very small group of entrepreneurs the most. And those entrepreneurs really have the selection ability. So to get into the best deals, you have to really compete. But the thing is, like, at the early stages, you have no idea who that 4% is. You know what I mean? You know, you don't know who's going to be that that four percent to turn into mobile. Well, well let me Holodox. let me give you an example. So, um, l let's use 
Ayal Waldman, who just sold Mellanox to NVIDIA, okay, for $7 billion. Let's say Ayal, you know, after he earns his earnout and takes some time to retire, comes up with a new business idea. Okay. Okay. Is he someone you would want to invest in or someone you have really no clue if he's going to be successful or not? I don't know. It depends. Maybe you think lightning doesn't strike twice in the same place. Right. Know? So, so the, 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 the research shows that if you've sold a business successfully once, the chances of you doing it again are actually much higher. A lot of times, you know, the first exit is just enough to, to give that entrepreneur sort of the financial stability that they never really need to, to work again. But if they choose to work again, this time they're doing it not to get rich. They're doing it out of some sort of like passion or just they basically they don't want to sell early anymore because they have no financial incentive to sell early. They have more of an incentive to take it all the way. So second time and third time entrepreneurs are much more likely to build like these colossal massive companies than the first time entrepreneur, which, you know, he or she sees a million dollars on the table that they can take home. And maybe it's not a great outcome for the VC, but it's a great outcome for the founder. So aligning incentives between the VC and the first time founder, it can be difficult sometimes because, you know, if I know I can sell at 50 million and I now have 5 million in the bank, the mm -hmm. VC, you know, they're going to get maybe two, three, four X, but VCs really want to see 10, 20, 30 X on their money because of the way the economics of, of the industry works. So, so they're not so happy with these big exits. No, they're very happy with huge exits. Okay. They're disappointed when, I don't, maybe just to, to clarify, so 50 million would be considered like a small exit. Okay. And then the hundreds of millions would be medium sized. And then anything over a billion would be okay. considered like a big exit. So they're happy with those. That's what they want to get to. They That's don't what want, they're shooting for. They don't, I mean, there's no like, there's no VC that looks to for a startup to, that just continues continually grows and 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 kind of uh, consistently grows and ma and like maintains that growth and grows into a company. I don't know that never sells. Is there is there any VC that's looking for that or are they always looking for this payout? Yeah. So I mean, the, basically, just you know, in terms of the way the the industry works, so you have private companies and public companies. Public companies are like. Google or Apple or Facebook or whatever. And the difference between Google, Apple, and Facebook and let's say uh, Lemonade, right, which is, an, is a company we all have heard about, is that you can't buy and sell Lemonade shares on an exchange. The only way you can do it is through a private market, mm -hmm. okay? So we're happy for Lemonade, you know, if I'm an investor, we're happy for them to go public because then we can sell our shares in the secondary market to other investors. But, you know, if they just grow continuously and they never go public, then we never really mm. are able to sell our shares and return capital to the people who gave us money in the first place. So, so it's either sell, exit, right. and be bought out by a, a huge company right. for a large sum of money, or do an IPO and sell shares to the public. Exactly. Okay. So, so you, don't want, you don't want to stay private and grow indefinitely because okay. then there's no real exit event. There's no return that you can actually pay out to your, your shareholders. But I feel, like in Israel, it feels like the main kind of track. Like it feels like everybody's shooting for this exit. Like it doesn't feel like anybody's trying to like, I mean, I don't know. I don't have yeah. enough knowledge about the, the industry, like, you know, the, 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 the area here, but mm -hmm. like, it feels like everybody's aiming for this, you know, the, uh, ICQ like story and sell and make tons of money and kind of, now with Mobileye and Mellanox and all these companies that are selling, it feels like everybody's shooting for that. 
and not really for like sustained growth and an IPO and yada, yada, yada. Is that accurate or is that not really true? It's, uh, it's not quite accurate. So Mobileye actually was a public company. They went public. And believe it or not, even public companies can still get acquired for significant premiums. Like Microsoft bought LinkedIn. LinkedIn was already public, but they got acquired for like $26 billion, which was a high premium over what they were trading at. Mobileye also, I think, was trading at $10 billion or something like this. And then Intel came in and put down a $15 billion offer. And Mellanox also went public, repaid you know many of the early investors high, high multiples. And then NVIDIA came in and snatched them from the public market and you know wrapped them into their own company. So you know the to the extent that Israeli companies are focused on getting acquired before they go public, you know, I think that's been sort of the the criticism. Israelis yeah. sell early, yada, yada, yada. They're not willing to build like a, a global company. I think that's changed. I mean, Fiverr just went public. Lemonade, I think, will eventually go public. You have Wixme is yeah. public. WalkMe is going to go public. Um, and yeah, I think there's, you know, at least 20 companies right now that are Israeli founded worth over a billion dollars. Some of them are still private. Some of them are not. But uh, it's clear that, you know, is Israel sort of shaking its reputation as, you know, purely a quick exit type yeah, type, yeah, yeah. type country. So how, how much is like, you know, you're, you're looking at this from the VC side. Mm-hmm. So well, I guess let's start by like, what do you guys look for? Mm-hmm. What, what's, what's the best way that a company can come and pitch an idea to you guys? Mm-hmm. So the, you know, at the seed stage, it's a little bit difficult to, you know, to, to, we just don't have much data. You know, when, when you're an A round investor, you know, you'll have probably 18 months of data on the team's ability to execute and what assets they've created and how many how many customers. And so wait, can you revenues. break that down for us? Like what's an A round, what's a B round mm-hmm. and all that? Yeah, yeah, sure. So basically, you know, the I guess the the chronology of a startup's life begins with a couple of founders with an idea trying to figure out like, is there an actual need for me to build this this product? It could be just software. It could be hardware and software. Square donuts. It could be square. You know, basically, we focus exactly (laughs) circular donuts. Out of style, square donuts starting to become a lot more popular. Trendy. Um, I've seen some cube donuts, but uh, they're hard to hard to bite. I have lots of cream just squirts. It's it's rough. (laughs) And um, you know, basically, we focus at Lul on technology enabled startups. But you could also make the claim that, like, you know, someone. Uh, who created this, right, Mm -hmm. is also a startup in a way, right? I mean, they started their own business. They're now Mm -hmm. selling, you know, this card game to to consumers. It is a startup in a way. I have to plug them now, guys. Please do it. The Chosen One game, chosenonegame.com. It's a card game. Check it out. They're awesome. Plus, you support the podcast. All right, yeah, exactly. Going. I didn't. I wasn't paid to say that. It was just natural. <laughs> that was that was perfect. That was, man. We should hire you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. So anyway, so basically, the so you could claim that they're a startup, but most of the startups here in Israel are tech. Well, tech most of the uh, startups are yeah, building some focused. sort of software-related yeah. product. Um, at least you know that that's what we focus on, and many of the VCs here focus on. So you got a, you got a couple of founders. They have an idea. They get together in a garage and they start this company. Classic. Yeah. And then you know they they need funding. Why do they need funding? Well, they want to hire people, right? To to build value, you actually need 
you know, talented people who are mm -hmm. capable of creating a, a product from nothing, from just a, you know, uh, an idea. So the first, you know, source of funding is usually family and friends. They'll throw in, you know, a couple tens or hundred thousand dollars to the founders just to get them you know, off the ground so they can hire maybe the designer to prototype what it will look like when it goes to, you know, production or, you know, they'll approach an angel who might be able to put 100K or 200K. And there's also pre-seed funds that will put like 250K. And so that's sort of like the earliest sort of way to get started in terms of it's financing. Like an unofficial round. Yeah, it's unofficial. I would, I would say that's accurate. Um, but, you know, that's only really to get things started. Now, in some cases, you might be able to get a grant from the government or you might be able to go to Horizon 2020 in the UN and, you know, you're doing something great for the planet. So they'll give you two million. You know, there's all these different funding sources at the early stage. There's accelerators, kind of there's incubators, yeah, there's yeah. all these very early stage funding sources. But eventually, like to really start, like really jumpstart your growth, either you need your customers to be putting a lot of money right back into the business so you can hire new people and you're already profitable, which is very rare, like probably you know, 0.01% of companies are able to, you know, software companies are able to finance themselves from customers that early on because it just takes resources to actually create yeah. a functional software product, even yeah. though that those resources have gone down over time. So then you come to us or you come to other seed, seed investors and you say, look, you know, I need one and a half million dollars, two and a half million dollars, sometimes three and a half million dollars. Lemonade raised $13 million in their first financing because, of the team, right? And so this brings us back to, you know, your initial question, like, what are you looking for when you first evaluate a startup? And basically, you know, ideas are, you know, one, like, there's millions of great ideas out Dime there. A dozen, yeah. But execution, exactly. Time a dozen. <laughs> the, the execution is obviously the more challenging part, right? Because, yeah. you know, I want to wake up every morning and run. It's a great idea. And then you look at the data, you know, how many times did I do that? It's much harder to actually put into practice things than, uh, than it is to say you want to. So we evaluate the track record of the team. Did they serve in an elite unit? Did they work at you know, a corporation that's known for you know, investing in their employees to create you know, knowledge and best practices? Um, you know, did they build and so sell a different startup? Do they have leadership qualities? Do they have determination? All these you know, softer traits we're also trying to understand because – Ultimately, it's funny because in VC, you just <laughs> sometimes within, you know, weeks, you give people, you know, a commitment for money and then you're marrying them for potentially 10 years. And it's sort of psycho to think about, you know, in the dating market, if after a couple weeks of dating someone in the non-religious communities, <laughs> you know, you would be willing to sign up for, for 10 or more years with this person you barely know. And that's basically what we do. I mean, sometimes... Uh, you know, evaluation process could take months, but normally it takes, you know, a month or less before we commit. And so we do a lot of work in that one period, um, you know, basically to understand who the people are. Do they have good chemistry? Do they have good morals? Like we do reference checks. We do all this work on the team itself to really understand the mm -hmm. team. That's one thing. But then obviously you have the market. What problem are they trying to solve? Is it a big problem? Is it an urgent problem? How many other 
you know, companies are solving this problem? Is it, you know, completely flooded with other companies trying to solve it? Is it something unique? So a lot of diligence around the market, you know, then obviously in Israel, we're known for our innovation and technology. Are they doing something differently than all these other companies? Or are they doing something defensible that no one else, you know, has thought of? They don't have the knowledge, they don't have the domain expertise. They didn't come from that specific unit that created that specific, you know, technology that now, you know, is like there's 10 people in the world who know about this and mm-hmm. it's quantum computing and it's going to change. You know, there's, there's all these parameters or risk factors that we have to look at. Um, as a seed fund, this gets actually back to your other question. We can only take the company to the A round. The A round is essentially just a name for the next round. So you have the okay. seed and then the A. Mm-hmm. And basically the A round investors are a little bit more discriminatory. As a seed fund, you know, you don't have that much data, so a lot of times you bet on the team, the idea, and the size of the market. Once you get to the A round, it's like, show us that you've actually been able to sell to customers, that the customers like your product, that they're using it, or if it's, you know, consumer-facing, that the users like it, that they're reviewing it, that they're using it. What's the engagement look like? What's the retention look like? You have all this data now in the business, and you can't fake it. At the seed round, you can kind of fake it because, you know, if you're really good at storytelling, you're really good at being a visionary, you know, seed round investors only have such a window that, you know, if they miss it, then suddenly, you know, it's going to become too expensive. We can talk about pricing, but it's kind of... It's so at a round, right. you're already expected to have a product. Yeah, in most in, in most cases, in most cases, you're expected to have a product. There's some ex- exceptions where it's like super deep technology that like you need dozens of engineers to work on it for like three years. But once it's like created, you know there will be nothing else like it in the world. And so an A round investor might put in like quantum computing is a great example because it's a it's an area where people are actually trying to build like a completely new way of yeah, computing what is that? information. It sounds, like, it sounds like comic book stuff. Yeah, so I, I'm not an expert and I'm not going to pretend to be, but um, basically there are certain mathematical problems that would take like this computer or this computer like hundreds of years to simulate to get to an answer. Mm. And simply put, quantum computers can do it in like hours, which means certain things about like mo- modeling biology or modeling, you know, certain math problems climate that climate, like that. weather, that's yeah. exactly, uh, cannot today be modeled accurately by classical computers, but with quantum computing, they can be. And these, most of these computers need to be like in super, super low temperatures underground, like IBM's working on it, Google's working on it, all these different companies are working on it. And so, you know, that takes, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of resources. So even after the seed round, they may raise an A round or a B round or even sometimes a C round with no actual customers yet mm-hmm. just because the resources it takes to create this new well, product. Yeah. What, what I'm wondering is I don't understand how like uh, – we'll, t- we'll, we'll continue talking a bit about like what B round is afterwards and what are the next stages sure, after that. Sure. But what I don't understand is, okay, you're talking about quantum computing, for example. I always imagine like these startups to be like uh, – I mean, Mobileye – as I guess kind of a good example, but like I imagine them to be this simple idea that's pretty simple to implement because, you know, that's something that you can kind of compete against these like huge technological giants like Google and Microsoft and whatever, right? Okay. IBM. But like, how do you come into the game saying, I'm going to, I'm going to be the game changer in quantum computing. Mm-hmm. Like when you have these like enormous corporations putting everything they have into like figuring out how to do what you were just describing. And then you come and say, okay, look, it's me and these three guys and we know 
how to do this. Like, is I mean, is that actually what's happening? Like, is that or is it like they're solving a certain problem of quantum computing, and for that they get funding? Yeah, I think that that last part is probably a little bit more accurate. Basically, when you have a new domain emerge, like uh, AI, right? I mean, that's been the buzz of like the last three years. Everyone's talking about AI. Sure, Google and Facebook and Amazon and whoever, they're building, you know, amazing AI teams that are solving incredibly complex problems. But it's such a massive space with so many different applications of AI and so much, Mm -hmm. so many different problems that, you know, are only emerging as the industry matures. You know, for example, like the, the, the way that you build AI applications requires that you get lots of data and that you clean the data and that you train the data. So, there's startups that specialize in cleaning the data. And mm-hmm. Facebook, you know, may have uh, a great, you know, AI cleaning data team, but they're using it for Facebook. What about all the other Fortune 500 companies, mm-hmm. right? They need a solution for their data science teams, right? So even if like, you know, Google and whoever is focused on quantum computing, you don't know if they're going to use it internally, use it externally, maybe they'll miss you know, some part of the full quantum computing stack that, you know, this team at the Weizmann Institute, for example, has just like, you know, really focused on in their research that no one at Google has yet identified this, you know, op- opportunity or this, you know, whatever break in the model once you get to a certain scale. Or maybe they've created a quantum computer that works 100 times better because mm-hmm. Google hasn't, you know, gotten well, there in terms of research. So what either. I'm wondering is like, is that where... Uh, the entrepreneurial kind of industry is heading? Is it just these like very niche, like very technical, highly skilled kind of problems that need solving? And if you can kind of, if you can find a solution to one of those, or how many of the startups are like these just kind of like, these like, you know, these ingenious ideas. They're like, oh, okay. Like Airbnb, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. how many of those are providing those solutions versus like, Okay, solving like an aspect of like deep learning or I don't know. Right. It's a good question. I don't know that I can, you know. Um, like are there good examples of, of big startups that are like, that are just coming up with these simple, like, you know, because yeah. I want hope. Like I'm not going to solve quantum computing, mm-hmm. but like maybe I'll come up with like, you know. <laughs> so right. I want, I'm looking for something, you know, for some hope. Right. So, I mean, most, you know, most non-technical entrepreneurs are looking for problems that they deal with every day. Yeah. So, you know, you might have a personal problem that you want to solve. You know, maybe the way that podcasts are marketed today sucks and it's very hard to get your podcast out there online. Mm -hmm. So you come up with like a podcast influencer platform that, you know, helps you. I mean, it looks like you're already doing that with the Israel story, but you know, Maybe you come up with some problem that, yeah. that you were facing as, a, as an entrepreneur, as a podcast entrepreneur. So there's plenty of those stories where like it comes from a personal problem. Obviously, someone working on quantum computing wasn't experiencing a personal problem in their life, but maybe they dedicated their life's research to it, so it also comes from a personal problem. But basically, I, I differentiate between enabling technologies, making things more efficient, versus disruptive technologies, which actually change the rules of efficiency. So like... You know, let me give you an example from our portfolio. There's a big problem today with bees. It was actually declared the most important living being on earth last year by the Royal Society of London. 
we depend on bees for 30% of our food. Like they pollinate, basically they're the sexual organs of nature. They pollinate 30% of the foods we eat, nuts, seeds, avocados, tomatoes, fruits, vegetables, basically all the healthy stuff bees are responsible for. And they're dying. Like they're getting crushed. They're sometimes 30 to 40%. This past winter in the U.S. was the worst like colony collapse we've ever seen in history. And there's lots of different, you know, um, theories about why they're dying. But ultimately, one that many bee scientists agree on is this lethal parasite called the Verona mite. And the Verona mite evolved in Indonesia and then was brought to the U.S. by accident with honeybees, because honeybees are not an indigenous species to the U.S., but they actually are the only species that can pollinate almonds. So 85% of the world's almonds today are grown in California. They ship in one and a half million hives every year for a three-week period just so we can have our almonds. It's a crazy situation. Wow, that's amazing. And they literally ship bees, live bees on trucks, 18-wheelers, 1.5 million. So imagine the transportation, the logistics, the insurance, like the, the catastrophes that could happen from having all these bees on trucks. And basically, these bees are just subjected to this lethal parasite, and they're just they're dying off. So what can we do? So they're brought to California, and then in California, they end up dying. They die on the way. They die in their apiaries. They're dying all over the place because we haven't really found a way to, to deal with this parasite. Now, you know, you can start monitoring the hives. You can put sensors on the hives and start listening and hearing when bees are starting to die and alert the beekeeper owner. And you say, go to the hive and, you know, spray pesticide and solve the problem. It turns out there's actually a labor shortage. There's not enough beekeepers. Now, you know what beekeepers look like. Like they're wearing this huge mm-hmm. thing. They're getting up at 5 a.m. They're driving all day and all night. It's like a, a really tough job. And there's not many out there. So even if you know that all of your hives are infected, you don't have enough beekeepers. You don't have enough manual labor to actually address the hives. And by the time the beekeepers get there, sometimes half the, you know, half the apiary is done. It's that quick? Yeah. I mean, like basically these bees are dying like sometimes in in hours, if not less. So um, basically, we invested in a robotic beehive, okay? And if you think about a lot of the beekeeping tasks, a lot of them can be automated by robotics and AI. And so they've recreated the hive. Now, why am I saying this? So you could sell, you know, a technology to the beekeepers. They can you know, drive faster and do more with the same tools and you're making them much more efficient as beekeepers, but you're not really changing the rules of the game. When you create a new hive, it automates the beekeeper completely. Think about autonomous driving, right? It's mm-hmm. not really an enabling technology. It's a disruptive technology. It actually changes all the economics of, of Uber and Lyft and taxis and all of the, and even just like transportation in general. So I would, to make a long story short, I would separate the different technologies being developed in Israel is, does it make something more efficient or does it change the business model of the industry? Wait, can you tell us the name of the bee company? Bee-wise. So bee-wise? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So would you say most of the companies in Israel are disruptive or are enabling or is it there's not a clear trend? Right. So, I, I mean, I, I can't say that I've done the, the research in terms of categorizing. I can say, you know, in our portfolio, I'd say probably like, 70% are enablement and 30% are disruptive, something like that. Disrupting is like 
uh, naturally is, more difficult. It's more it's more difficult, and right. I think it's more difficult for Israelis, even though they are very innovative in, what, in their thinking. But usually, the disruption is coming to the U.S. market, right? And I think it's a little bit more challenging to just like completely revolutionize a foreign market versus like Silicon Valley. I mean, you hear this word disruption just, you know, every single time you're there. Like, I think the Silicon Valley ethos historically has been how do we disrupt? And the the ethos in Israel has been how do we make it more efficient? And now maybe we're seeing a little bit of like cross-pollination, not to use a pun, but uh, between the two ecosystems. And I think Israelis are becoming a little bit more disruptive. Nice. Can you tell us a, a bit more about like other companies that you guys are uh, invested in? Like no. Cool, no? Yeah, I can, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, BeWise is pretty interesting. Um, we invested in a company called No Traffic. Okay. Um, basically, they've developed a sensor system for intersections. I don't know if you know the, the stats, but uh, just above 1% of the intersections in the United States are connected to the internet which means that all all the other 99% are just going on like these automated programs that get pre-planned by traffic engineers and are not responsive to real-time, you know, mm. uh, problems. Yeah. So basically they have a, a plan for the traffic hour and a plan for the non-traffic hour, and that's as sophisticated as it gets. And the, the tracking of cars is based on these like really expensive old-school wires that are built underneath the road. And so what no traffic basically said is, look – we have a, a system that connects your infrastructure to the internet. It actually can talk to cars as they're coming and warn them, you know, if there's oncoming traffic from the other direction that's going to run a red light. It can alert you to pedestrians. It's basically the infrastructure for autonomous vehicles. They're, being, they're a b- big part of that. And basically when you put cameras on the intersection, you connect it to the internet, you allow the city to just essentially enforce their traffic management policy much more effectively and basically, you know, in the middle of the night when, you know, the Amazon truck is going down the corridor and it's going 40 miles per hour to get to its shipping destination, every stop is, you know, an economic failure, right? Mm-hmm. You just want that truck to be able to go straight through, assuming there's no cars. But at 2 a.m., there's no cars, yet the lights are still mm-hmm. stopping them. You've been at a red light at like 3 a.m. with no, no one, one around, there. you yeah. run it. Who the fuck, you know? No, or you don't. <laughs> uh, but but <laughs> if the traffic, if, if the intersection was adaptive yeah. to the, the environment, then you could, you know, essentially never have to deal with the green light uh-huh. again at night. So there's all the, like when a pedestrian is walking the, into the street and the light's about to turn green from red, you as the city can now hold the red for just those few extra seconds to make sure that the, the cars don't start gunning fire and like fire you know fire trucks like police cars all these things that today like you know are causing these safety hazards because they put on the sirens imagine if you could just change the entire road green algorithms that make it smarter so that that's that's the next yeah i mean that's 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 the next phase first you give the humans the tools they give you the data to you know then train the ai and then the next thing you know algorithms are running the world so (laughs) was that something we need to worry about um you know i think it depends for certain you know certain things like surveillance we've seen that there's you know inherent biases in the way that these systems work and potentially they can favor certain races or genders or classes based on the the data that's training the system so we need to be very careful about how 
you know, AI and surveillance get paired together. Um, but I think, you know, for, for healthcare, like being able to get personalized healthcare from AI and not have to rely on like generic advice from the system, that's going to change, you know, a lot of people's lives for the better. But if we go back to that previous point, I mean, that's an interesting point because isn't it kind of like, so there's a lot of talk about racial profiling, for example. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm assuming that's kind of like an example of what you're talking about. And in Israel, you know, no one here cares about that because like we're kind of dealing with the issues for real. And so we racial profile, we racially profile because it's effective mm -hmm. and there's a lot of controversy around it in the States. It, you know, would not fly mm -hmm. uh, if you picked someone out because he looked Arab. Sure. Um, but if the, you know, if the data is doing that, like maybe there's like, some, you know what I mean? Maybe it's like, that's how maybe, maybe us meddling with it is actually, actually doing the opposite. So now we're making it less secure. Let's say we have a security system that racially profiles. Mm -hmm. We're actually, we're actually detriment. We're actually causing a detriment by saying, okay, no, you need to treat all races equal. Yeah. I, I don't think that's, I mean, that, that, that potentially could cause, you know, um, false positives or false negatives. If you try to meddle with the data, I think the problem is that if you don't use, um, like, equal data when you're training the AI, then the data will be much more accurate for, let's say, white people than black people. Mm. So it may mistake like a certain black person for, you know, someone else because the sophistication of the algorithm just was weaker because mm -hmm. you had less data. Mm -hmm. And that's basically what I'm I'm saying is a threat. Like if you train the the algorithms and you have enough data on a certain population and not enough on another population, the algorithm might actually make the wrong judgment call when it should have ma like made a different It's like facial recognition, I, I know, is like actually harder for black people with computers because they've been trained mostly on white faces. Exactly. It's, yeah, it's very difficult. All right, cool. So what happens to all the startups that fail? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like where, where do they go? Does, does all the money that's invested in a startup by VCs or by angel investors, just kind of poof, disappears? Yeah, I mean, uh, have you heard of Cyprus? <laughs> yeah. We just send them there. <laughs> and then um, uh, Avigdo and picks yeah, up the scraps. Yeah. No, no, I mean, you know, obviously VC is a business of many failures and a few winners that hopefully make up for the failures. Uh, as, a, as a good VC, you're actually supposed to just ditch the the losers as quickly as possible and focus all your resources on the winners. The problem is that VCs have reputations, and if you get a reputation for being, you know, extremely abrasive to founders that are having struggles, then as you, you know, build your career over the long run and, you know, people reference check you as a VC, which, you know, good entrepreneurs will also call your portfolio up and say, you know, what were they like in the bad times? Mm -hmm. So if you act like a shitty person when the times mm -hmm. are bad, then your chances of winning a competitive deal when founders are referencing you will go down. So I think there is an incentive in the system to help even the, the struggling companies to an extent. You know, obviously, like, there's only so much you can do. Um, basically, you know, if, if a company is running out of money and you see that they might only need a few more months to really crack you know, some business opportunity, then yeah, you'll, you'll potentially give them a little bit more runway. If Can a VC just pull out money? I mean, isn't there so a way? So we, we uh, I mean, at Lul, we do it, you know, our way, each VC does it differently, but usually you reserve 
you know, anywhere from 25 to 75% of your funds to support your portfolio of investments. So, you know, I might put in 1.5 up front, but I might have 1.5 on the back end, either for, you know, the next round, I want to participate or a rainy day when something goes wrong. Um, and so each VC works a little bit differently, but ideally you'll have a little bit of, you know, money in the bank just mm -hmm. to support the companies if they're struggling. Now, you might also say, well, look, I have a company that's doing amazing. I want to put it there because they have a much higher probability of, you know, returning a high return on that capital. And if I put it in the company that's struggling and they don't figure it out in two or three months, then I just blew that cash and that's mm -hmm. not good. So it's always this, you know, calculation of probabilities. I wish I could say it's a science. It's more like a combination. Art. Yeah, it's like yeah. you need to feel out the the entrepreneur <laughs> and their capabilities, but um, it's uh, yeah, it's not it's not always so easy. Not simple. So tell me about uh, WeWork has been hitting the headlines mm -hmm. a lot lately. I I don't know the story. I just okay. know that I've heard a lot about the uh, CEO and him being a bit of like a, a kind of. Uh, uh, bit wild mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh tell us the story of what's going on with we work and uh and what kind of what are the issues there yeah i mean i'll start by saying i'm not an expert on we work i never did diligence well, on I'm the company sure I, I i'm aware but i'm yeah. not you know i'm not like you know yeah, yeah whatever cnbc talking about talking about we work so um you know they they started as a concept which had already been established called co-working they weren't yeah. the first one to come up with it, but, but they were the first one to sort of like create an iconic brand around this idea of like people working in a shared office space. And you've been to WeWorks, you know what it's like. It's like you have the beer and you have like the colors and it's chic and it's urban mm -hmm. and it's cool. And actually, I'm very grateful for WeWork because when I came to Israel in February 2015 with no friends, no apartment, all I had was a job. Thank God I had something. Um, I was in a WeWork for the first year in, mm. in Israel. And through that experience, I actually met friends and one of my best friends I met in the WeWork. He was also working there. Um, so I'm really grateful to WeWork for, for what, what they've brought to the world. I think the issue you know, ultimately is one of economics. Now, recently we've seen the issue is also one of governance and the CEO and his behavior and the way that he's sort of, you know, I would say, manipulated the company's well-being uh, in exchange for his well-being financially. And that's what a lot of, I think, the, the criticism has come to. But people are you know, really concerned about the, the economics of the business because basically they're, you know, ha they have a lot of income from rent, but they're also taking on you know, tens of billions of dollars in liabilities, long-term leases to actually operate and run these spaces. So when you look at the business model, I think last year they did like 1.7 billion in revenue, but they lost like 1.9 billion of of you know losses, which is a net difference of 3.6. So they're not actually they're nowhere close to profitability. Now, Uber's not, Lyft is not. There are plenty of companies that have IPO'd before gaining profitability, and usually the story they tell is we're favoring growth over profitability, meaning that once we you know, become the monopoly because we're growing and we're, you know, better than all of our competitors. Then like Amazon, which was unprofitable public for, I don't know, a decade. Um, I think that's my phone. Okay. One second. No problem.
Oh, you know what it's for? You tell me. I gotta, I gotta give my cat antibiotics. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Can you do we, that remotely? Or? <laughs> not yet, but maybe that's a startup okay, idea. Maybe. Um, okay, maybe. Okay, so. Water bottle. Yeah, so, uh, so we work. Right. So a lot of companies are not profitable. Are you saying Amazon wasn't profitable? Amazon wasn't profitable for until like 2017. Yeah. Because all of their revenues just went right back into growth and extending their defensibility and their moat so that ultimately there was just no way any other retailer would be able to compete with Amazon. Mm -hmm. So we work and others have claimed the same. Like because we're the dominant monopoly that's going to keep growing like wildfire, eventually, like at some point, all of our competition will die out and we'll capture this entire co-working market. Mm. I think the reality is that it doesn't work the way it worked with Amazon in real estate and in, in co-working because the barriers to entry of starting up a co-working space are not so high. Like you need to have a little bit of startup capital, but where Amazon, it's like able to have these economies of scale, which allow it to do like the best prices in the world. WeWork is not doing the best prices in the world. They're actually trying to do like a premium price, right? So look, WeWork, I think the thesis there, if you believe in it, is that because they have so many freelancers and startups and corporates that eventually they can aggregate a bunch of services, whether it's like, you know, uh, insurance or, um, you know, banking or um, dry cleaning or whatever it is, like they aggregate the services and they provide them to their community at a discount. And so the community is not just paying rent. Mm -hmm. They're now paying almost all of their operating costs as a business Mm. to WeWork as the vendor, as like their, their single vendor. If they can, you know, prove that model, I think that might change the economics a little bit. But at the end of the day, at least the the investors in the public markets are saying this is much more a real estate business than a technology business. And so the multiples of a technology business on revenues are much, much higher than on a real estate business. Yeah. Why? Because the business model is different. We can get into it, but you know, it's But it's you technical. also have the, like you mentioned, there's the issue of governance and you have this like there's this new type of like celebrity CEO that's like Sometimes kind of rubs investors and generally the public the wrong way. You have Sorry like, for chewing. <laughs> <laughs> you have like Elon Musk and you have, uh, you know, uh, the CEO of WeWork. Right. Adam what, Neu Neumann. Neumann. Uh, so why, why do you think that, like, do you think that that just happens as a consequence of like huge success? Or is it something that was just kind of there from the start and missed by, you know, investors? I think the irony is that investors are attracted to th this personality, mm. you know, sort of this like very charismatic, uh, charismatic, visionary, like incredible storyteller. Like, you know, Adams, I think in, in his filing for public, he wants to elevate the world's spiritual consciousness. Like that was that's what we work is about. The we company is about elevating our consciousness. I mean. He he actually believes this. I think he, you know, truly believes that this. You think so? <clears throat> I heard a quote that he said if he was to be president of anything, it'd be president of the world. I don't know. It sounds kind of pretentious. He thinks he's God for sure. Like he he thinks he's maybe on the, the level of Jesus, you know. But but in the modern era, um, so yeah, I mean, maybe he has certain psychological, you know tendencies yeah. towards power and wealth and ego and i don't know him so i don't 
you know, personally, I can't really speak to his his psychology, but he's definitely, you know, especially in Israel, like if we see someone who really has the charisma and the confidence and they just like can tell the story of how they're going to bring it to the world, investors like, you know, they eat it because they, they obviously, you know, telling stories is like one of the most fundamental things to our species. And so finding someone who can really tell a good story in English in Israel is harder than, you know, finding it in the States. And he just also like has the hand, he's like handsome and good looking and has that, that vibe of like, I'm going to be successful. And I think that's what happened with SoftBank too. Like this guy, you know, whatever his name is, the Japanese investor who gave him so much money, I think was just like charmed at the end of the day mm-hmm. by, by Adam's voice and, you know, the way he interacted and the fun they had together. He never really dug in deeply enough to the, yeah. the business or his team did and he neglected it. Who really knows? So. Because that's interesting because like you mentioned before, there's all this market research and looking into the business model and all. And when you're saying that, I was like, okay, so how much power can, you know, a person, a personality have? But you're saying that that can influence a lot, maybe more with angel investors than with a VC, maybe more when you're kind of tackling one guy with a lot of money. It could be. I mean, ultimately, the team trumps all. I think if you have a great market, great technology, great product, but the CEO can't tell the story. I can't give you this sense of like, this guy's going to be able to sell, right? Because you're not just selling to your investors. You're selling to your employees, your customers, mm-hmm. your future investors, your partners, the media. Like all the time, you're selling, selling, selling the vision, the story, the mission, why this company needs to be successful. And based on how that story resonates with all of these different stakeholders, ultimately is going to determine a lot of your success or failure. So. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, you know, definitely something we, we definitely, we focus on. Yeah. Cool. Listen, I think, uh, that was really enlightening for a lot of guests. Uh, I don't think anybody kind of knows the whole kind of startup. Like we all hear startup nation, but we don't really kind of understand what's going on here. The relationship between VCs and startups and all the drama behind it. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I guess it's probably a good idea to, to go and read about it and check out startup nation. I've never read it. Mm. it's recommended or is it just kind of like uh, Israel propaganda? Yeah, so it's funny you say that. So basically, uh, there's a music video coming out in a couple weeks. <laughs> okay. And this is my chance to plug. Is this the second one? <laughs> this is actually the third one. So oh, the wow. first one was in college. I was uh, studying for a marketing exam and I didn't really feel like studying, so I wrote a rap about the, the test. Then I went into the, the class the next day and I asked my teacher if I could perform it for the class, yeah. which I'm sure she's never, she never heard before and she's never heard after a student asking to rap about her, her exam. And I did it and it was fun and she liked it. And she said, look, instead of your final exam, why don't you do a rap about the Fox School of Business where I went to school and that will be your final. You'll do a rap video. You get some classmates together. That'll be like your project. I said, you know what? That sounds like fun. So I wrote a rap about the Fox School of Business. I had my friend in the class film it and edit it. And she cried. You know, she really, it really moved her. (laughs) And I I got an A. Mary Conran. That was 10 years ago. And I went to the partners at Lul a few months back. And I said, look, like, uh, here's this video I created in college. I don't know why, but I suddenly feel like this urge to create another one. And I think it'd be fun to create one that, excuse me engages with entrepreneurs because 
as I see it as a venture investor, there's this huge knowledge gap between what entrepreneurs are thinking and what VCs are thinking. And then when entrepreneurs go and pitch and like get into a, a conversation with VCs, a lot of times they just haven't really thought through all of the, the aspects that VCs are really trying to, to understand. So the little partners gave me the green light. They said, go shoot it. My good friend Julian was, uh, was kind enough to help me with the project. And I created this video and it got good feedback in like the local, yeah, yeah. The local ecosystem. But, you know, that's, that's sort of the beginning. And then I said, well, why don't I create something that's like a little bit more close to my heart? You okay. know, something a little bit more near and dear. And so I decided to write a rap about Isra. And basically... Cherry tomatoes and all that? That's, uh, <laughs> we, we left that one out. We left that one out. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, you live here. I live here. We're both from the States originally. Um, and we know that like the narrative, you know, that gets that Israel gets portrayed as uh, in, in the media is often, you know, distortion, very distorting to, to what the reality on the ground is. And even though Startup Nation is a great book, let's be honest, why haven't you read it? Why haven't, you know, most of people our age or younger read it? And the Snapchat generation definitely hasn't read it. It's because that's not how they're consuming information anymore. It's these short form videos, it's these snaps and mm -hmm. stories and little, you know, bite-sized clips online. And so I thought, what if I could turn the book into a bite-sized clip online? Wouldn't that be good for Israel and, and you know, and getting its story, at least both sides of the story out? Look, everyone should be held accountable for their actions. Every country should be held accountable for their actions. I really believe in, in taking responsibility, but... We're very quick to criticize and we're very reluctant to praise. And it's frustrating to live Israel in Israel in general, but also in Israel. I mm -hmm. think people are very quick to criticize, very reluctant to praise. But even your relationships, think about how many more times you criticize than you give praise. Like it's really, it's a tragedy. And I think we need to be a little bit more conscious of, of the praise that we can give to others as well as to the, the, the environments in which we, which we live. So for me, it's like, an amazing opportunity to praise Israel. But then I went to Startup Nation Central, and I, you know, I don't know if you know them, they, they're a nonprofit that helps to bridge between corporate innovation abroad and Israeli technology here. And I said- Is it I founded by the same people that wrote the book? It is. Oh, okay. Sponsored by family of the people who wrote the book, I believe. Paul Singer, not Saul Singer. I, don't, I think they're related, but I'm not 100% <laughs> okay. sure. It's just a typo now. <laughs> um, and so I asked them if they would, you know, sponsor- this production and they, yeah. they said, yeah. So I feel very humbled to be, you know, being, being a creator in this, uh, in this video and, and being a rapper and that will come out and hopefully, you know, if that doesn't <laughs> inspire you to read the book, at least we'll give you some, you know, bite-sized piece of, uh, piece of content. Maybe, maybe it'll be the uh, beginning of Max Marine's rap career. Or the continuation. Or the continuation. Well, the, you know, what, what blows up the career. So I, have, I hope so. I have two more raps. One is about cleaning the cigarette butts because it's a huge issue, especially in Israel. <laughs> Four and a half trillion butts are flicked annually, uh, like in the streets. In Israel. No, 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 or, in, the uh, world. in the world. But that's 10 times more butts than stars in the Milky Way. Just think about that. Once a year. The stars stay pretty constant, but the butts keep getting flicked. And they're extremely toxic. They're worse than plastic. They're polluting our ecosystems and, and marine life is getting just decimated so by a rap song or so or there's start a there's a there's or... a rap song about cleaning the butts okay uh that'll come out at some point and then the past over the weekend during rosh hashanah i wrote a new rap about 
global warming. So that's also a topic I'm okay. excited to share nice. my own perspective on. So, What's the, uh, Toby, you want to save it for the release of the video? Uh, the the Startup reveal? Nation one? Or no, the, the, climate, the climate change one. So, I mean, I can give you like a, you know, a, I, can, I can tell you the chorus, you know, okay. just to give you a sense of, of what's coming, okay? So, all the people you love and all the food that you eat are gifts from planet Earth, the ground beneath your feet. Let's honor Mother Nature, admit there is no savior. To stop catastrophe, we must change our behavior. I think that's like the essence of it. You know, there's all these gifts that we take for granted from planet Earth. It comes right beneath our feet. All the food, all the people, it's a gift. And then let's honor Mother Nature by saying, look, we're creating all this destruction and catastrophe with our actions. I mean, ultimately, people think it's like complicated and complex. No, it's just temperature. That's all that's happening. The temperature is rising much faster than it ever has before. And when that melts glaciers, then you have sea levels rising that puts cities like underground. A whole I'm not going to get into it. <laughs> I'm just saying that you know people, don't, I don't think, have a simple explanation of what's happening or okay. a simple explanation of how to take actions to you know, change this you know, mm -hmm. impending doom. So that's another reason I, I like to... To write and and I think rap is an interesting format to communicate yeah. a lot of information sort of quickly. So okay, anyway. cool. So guys, look out for the uh, third Max Marine rap video exactly. and rap song. And uh, what are you also on social media or do you write blogs or something like that? I have a media. I have a you? medium that's uh, Max Marine or Maximilian Marine. I actually I'm yeah. working on my personal brand now because you know it might uh, it might matter sooner rather than later. Um, honestly, you know, <laughs> you can follow me at tw Twitter at Big Max Marine, but <laughs> there's no followers and there's no content. So it might be a little <laughs> premature, but you know, if you want to, want to keep track of me, I'm actually, I'm curious to get your, your perspective, like, you know, for, for a rap sort of yeah. identity or whatever, like what platform you know, is I think I'm the last one, a guy named Aton Weinstein, to give you rap yeah, advice. You could, but uh, <laughs> just like I guess musical creation, like I mean, there's yeah. Instagram, there's YouTube, there's Facebook. Yeah, I think you gotta be like everybody always says, get on all the channels, but like yeah. we're we're definitely not there. We just started with our Instagram a little while ago, and it's been uh, it's been a struggle. It's hard. It's hard, man. To it's build like an independent creator to right. like get your stuff on all this different. You know, exactly. It's it's, it's tough, but uh, but but I wish you luck. Thank you. And thank you so much, man, for joining us. For sure. Before we go, though, we have a uh, collaboration with the Jewish Journal. You know the Jewish Journal? Is that Jewish from Journal. L.A.? Yeah, the Jewish Journal of cool. L.A. Uh, so check them out, guys, jewishjournal.com. There's great podcasts, great columns. There's Shmuel Rosner's podcast, David Suiza's. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of good podcasts and a lot of good, uh, a lot of good content. So check them out, jewishjournal.com. And we got the chosen one. I can't stop touching yeah, it. Yeah, like, the energy is just yeah, it's emanating. It is. So, guys, check them out. Thechosenonegame.com. Use our promo code two, the number two NJB. You can also just click the link in the podcast description. And you get a discount. It's a hilarious game. You got question and answer cards. You match them up. It's really funny stuff. A bit, uh, a bit grotesque sometimes. So maybe it's it's like rated PG 16. 13, 16. 16, I'd say. I don't know. They have an eight, uh, 17 plus. Wow, so maybe I'm wow. a little bit more 13 liberal. 13 is the new 17. Yeah. <laughs> 17 is the new 13. Yeah. So check them out. Chosenonegame.com. 2NJB is a promo code. 
And lastly, we do this on our free time, guys. So uh, you can go to 2njb.com slash donate and, uh, you know, help us out if you want to. Thank you so much, man. Really, it was really enlightening, really interesting. I didn't think you'd be this knowledgeable about all this stuff. I thought I'd like <laughs> ask you quite be like, I don't know, man. But you have all this information. It was really, it was really interesting. Uh, thank you. For sure. My pleasure. All right. Bye, guys. Bye.